You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hey, uh, it is good to be here this morning. I am uh, very blessed. I was going to start off this story by telling uh, a wife, or the sermon by telling a wife story. So, first of all, I'm blessed. I have a wife. Uh, which is awesome. Um, if you don't have one, you should seriously look into it. Um, I, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, <laughs> moving on. It's going to be a good sermon, you can tell right now. Hey, uh, I am blessed to have an awesome wife that loves to adventure and go on crazy adventures just like I do. And about a month ago, we headed south down to Wallawa Lake area. And for those of you that have been down there, you know it's a pretty amazing place. If you haven't been there, I would suggest you go and check it out. It's, it is a beautiful, beautiful country. And so we headed out and kind of made some plans to go hike a specific area and a specific trail. And we set out on the, our plan and kind of knew where we were going and where we were heading and what we were going to do. And then we got to this one spot where there was this big rock knoll, this big point, like this pile of rocks, and we're standing on top of it, and you can see like probably almost a mile up this canyon that we're seeing behind me on the screen. And, and you could see all the way down this canyon and these steep, sheer rock walls, and it was like just just magnificent and deep and all this cool stuff. And it was like, oh, how awesome would it be to be in that canyon? Like, But there's no way to get in there. Aha, I have a new toy. And so I was like, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to fly my new drone. And so I get my drone out and I start messing around and making some flights around there. Mind you, this is the second time I've ever flown it in my life. And so I start flying it a little bit and I get a little bit overconfident. And I decide to go about a mile up the creek and watching it on my phone through a line of sight on the phone, I turn around, fly it underneath that bridge, and I come down the canyon as you're watching behind me. And uh, probably my drone flying skills were not quite up to par because this flight and adventure down the canyon didn't quite go according to plan. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like... You're just like hanging in there going, uh-oh, 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 where do we go? And so as we go down the canyon, uh, we had plans for the day. We had a pretty good outline of where we were going to go and what we were going to do. And we decided uh, that we were going to you know, do this whole route, and we had it all mapped out. And then this little thing happens, and it really altered my plans for the day. And all of a sudden, life took a big detour. to the drink. And so that led us on a detour down into the bottom of that canyon. Kayla stayed up on the top of the canyon. I hiked all the way up and around over the bridge, back down the other side, found a way to get into the canyon, which I nearly died four times. Um, And I got into the bottom of the canyon. And the minute I got into the bottom of the canyon, I realized this was a really bad idea because it is steep and raging water and cold and icy, and I've got like no you know, gear to be in there. Um, Kayla stayed up on top so she could tell the search and rescue where, to, where they last saw my body. And I had the keys in my pocket, I realized, to the truck. Once we were in the bottom, they, you know, I'm in the bottom. It's so far away, you can't even scream and hear each other. It's, a, it's way down in there. After multiple creek crossings, going full bear grills across the river and hanging onto sticks, I made it within about 15 feet and wasn't able to recover the drone. It's in a big old deep hole. And so I have an adventure for this summer. And 
I think when we think about detours and when things don't go according to plan, oftentimes uh, we see detours as a big inconvenience. When we see a detour in our life and things don't go the way we want them to, we often think of it as a, a, a hassle because it means the long way around or it means the way we wanted to do it, we're not going to be able to do it that way anymore. And I think a lot of times we get frustrated or inconvenienced. And then as I was wrestling with this idea of detours, it just reminded me that like, what if we're supposed to kind of get our eyes up and our, and our heart soft, and, and even in the detours, even when things don't go according to plan, we're supposed to um, be aware of what's going on around us. And even in the detours, can we find wonder and awe and beauty and amazing, cool things? And, and I was able to end up seeing some things in the bottom of that canyon that I never would have seen otherwise. In fact, it got, it kind of struck me as I'm coming out of the canyon, sopping wet, frozen cold, a little bit nervous about how I'm going to get out, that in the midst of all that, not going the way it was supposed to go, still even then, I saw some things that probably very few people on earth have ever seen from that spot. And I just had to kind of stop and soak it up. And, and it got me thinking about how As I read scripture and I dig into God's word and I read God's stories about how much our God is a God who loves to take people on detours. He reroutes people's lives. When you think about the stories in the Bible, there's just one after another after another. But you think about the obvious ones. Abraham, his life was going great. And God said, time for a detour. And he's like, okay, where? And he goes, you just get going. I'll tell you later. Right? Story after story, Joseph, his entire life was detour after detour. It went from a hole in the ground to a slave camp to Potiphar, a job with him, to jail, to second in command to Pharaoh. Like one thing after another. And these weren't small detours. These were like radical changes from the way that he had been going. Moses' life, he sort of gets his feet back under him. Things are going fine, and and God says, we're going to reroute your life, and I'm going to set you on a course that's going to put you toe-to-toe with the most powerful person in the world. I don't think that's what he had in mind when, when he was thinking out the future of his life. And so... There's story after story after story in God's word, how he reroutes or, get, or, or puts people on detours. I want to spend some time to get today in a, in a detour story where Jesus takes the disciples on a detour. And I want to challenge you to engage this story. It's a story you've probably heard before, but I want to challenge you to engage this story and be ready to look for wonder. Don't get hung up in the, in the story and the you know what happens next because you've heard it before. Like just sink in it minute by minute and see if you don't get caught off guard with the wonder of God and how he works in this story. So this story starts off with Jesus and the disciples in Jerusalem and they're going to head north from Jerusalem up to the Galilee region. Now normally when a Jew goes from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would head east down into Jericho. They would leave Jericho and go down into the Jordan River Valley, and then they would follow the Jordan River north all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, and then depending on which side they were going to go to or which region they would go, they'd travel from there. And this was not an accidental route for Jews. This was a very purposeful, intentional route. Although when you look at a map, 
It's not the shortest route. It actually looks sort of like the long way around to get to the Sea of Galilee from Jerusalem. There's a straighter route, but the straighter route would take people through Samaria, and Jews would not go through Samaria. They would take the long way around on purpose because they believed that Samaritans were half-breeds and unclean, and they would not rub shoulders with them, much less go travel through their towns and villages. And so this story starts with Jesus getting ready to take his guys on a detour. Uh, It's going to be in John chapter 4. All of this is in your notes, but it'll be up on the screen too. So uh, John chapter 4 starts off like this. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize him, the disciples did. Uh, So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, it's an interesting detail to include at the very beginning of the story. He had to go through Samaria because that's, that's not the way that Jews would have normally gone. They would have always, like Jews, would have said, we have to go through Jericho and up the Jordan River Valley because we don't go where Samaritans are. But yet Jesus, very intentionally, it wasn't a passive thing or an accidental thing, like Jesus was embarking on a very intentional detour from the north to take his guys on this new route. And I think a lot of times when we think about detours, we think like, oh, this isn't the way I wanted to go. This isn't the way I planned. This isn't the, like, we think of all the inconvenience about it. And even in like road construction, when you see detour signs, our first thing that we think of is the pain and how far is it going to go and how long is this going to throw me off and, and am I going to get stuck or it's going to send me somewhere I'm not familiar with and what if I get lost and all of that stuff. But then we forget that behind the scenes, there was a bunch of intentionality that went into getting those signs where they are. Like someone planned the detour. And for them, there was reasons for it. It was for your safety and for the benefit of the workers working on the things so that things could get done in a way where they weren't hindered by traffic or people. Right? And there's, there's all this intentionality. And I think in the same way, the disciples might have saw this as an inconvenience and not the way they wanted to go, and it wasn't according to their plan, but Jesus sort of was like, yeah, I put these road signs out ahead of time, and there's a reason for the way that we're going. And so uh, verse 5 says, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. I just think it's so cool how Jesus responds to her here. He, he's not mad at her. He's not giving her a guilt trip. He's not shaming her. I, it seems like he actually assumes the best about her as they engage each other. And, and she comes to the circumstances here, to this situation, sort of with her normal expectations. Like she, she brings what she knows to the table, that Jews and Samaritans, they don't talk. And certainly a Jewish man would not talk to a woman alone, much less a Samaritan woman alone. And it's as if Jesus is engaging her and inviting her to think about things a new way. He's like, he's like, 
I know you've got your expectations. I know you're seeing things the way you've always seen them. But if you knew, isn't that kind of a cool thing? If you knew, if you, if you knew what God was up to, and if you knew who I was, you would forget everything about Jews and Samaritans. And you would be running to me to ask me for a drink. Verse 11 says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, he said. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. What's pretty cool here is Jesus is doing something that that I think it's easy to take for granted how amazing this is. He starts with this story, this story. He engages her at the well. He's talking big picture stuff. He's talking about God. He's talking about salvation and living water. And if you knew about God, and then like, bam, like that, he cuts right to this nitty gritty, super personal heart stuff. Like this very behind the scenes, private stuff going on with this lady. And I think this is our first glimpse of wonder in this detour because we get this glimpse of, of like, we get a glimpse of God and how Jesus can cut to the chase and lean right into your personal stuff in a way that doesn't push people away. I, I don't know if you've ever met anybody that you don't know very well and as you get to know them, they sort of feel like somehow they have the right to just get into your nitty gritty stuff and start telling you about what you should do with your marriage or what you should do with your life or what you should do with your kids. And it feels a little offensive. It feels like you get your, your walls up quick. Or if you've ever been that person where you're, you sort of overstep and you, uh, you give advice that wasn't asked for, it doesn't go very well. People get defensive. People push back. People get like, that's the person I'm going to avoid again. Like that, it makes people uncomfortable. But there's something amazing about the way Jesus can just cut right to the chase and engage us at a heart level, even on stuff that's uncomfortable. And look at how she responds. Verse 19 says, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? You see, she's not defensive. She's not offended. Her response to Jesus digging into her super personal stuff, she responds with curiosity. She wasn't pushed away. She's actually drawn in and wants to know more about him. And I think that's something pretty amazing at the way Jesus can engage us. And then he goes on to answer her question about where to worship. And it's as if Jesus is saying to her, like, listen, again, like the, like the drink of water exchange at the beginning, like he's inviting her to think about things in a new way. He's like, I, it's as if Jesus is going to say to her, like, I know you've always heard this and the Jews have always said this, but I want to know if you're open to something entirely new. 
Can you, can you set aside your preconceived ideas and be open to something new? Verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, a lot of people have heard this story. A lot of people have read those words, and a lot of people have not given it a second thought and rolled right on to the next sentence many a time. And I need you to just slam on the brakes right now, like literally, like catch yourself in your seat. Like you need to like feel a little bit of like stop. What we just read is so amazing, is so radical. Most people don't even know it. Like it's one of those things where, like, you just read something, you just watched a story in your mind's eye that is one of the most powerful, amazing, radical things in the Bible, and you don't even know it. You probably don't know, like most of us don't know, like I didn't know before I dug in and started studying this stuff that this is the first time ever that Jesus actually reveals who He is. There was speculation about, was he maybe a famous prophet? Was he an, a, 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 you know, a really powerful rabbi that was going to have these great teachings and great followers? It was speculation and wonder about who was Jesus and what was he up to. But this is the first time that he out and out says, I am the Messiah. And we get a glimpse of the wonder of God in this situation. We get a glimpse of something that's just so profound and so amazing that, that we see God going to a place that you would not think a perfect God would go. To engage with a person that you wouldn't think a perfect God would engage with. And to reveal himself personally, intimately to a person that you wouldn't think God would ever talk to, much less look in the eye. Everything about this is anti-cultural, anti-traditional. Like this, it doesn't fit the mold. That God would go to this place and it, it, it taps into this wonder and reverence and just, it should leave you awestruck at like, seriously, like this, this is the person, this is the place. Like of all the places Jesus could have gone, of all the people Jesus could have talked to, Jesus went here to talk to her, and in the entirety of history, of any opportunity, this is who he chooses to the, for the first time to reveal himself to. And, and what it shows me, and I think it shows all of us, is that, that God is a God who will meet you at your well. When you're rolling through shame, when you're guilty about something, when you've got junk going on in your life that you don't want anybody to know about and you're hiding out at the well at noon because you don't want to hang around where people are hanging around. You don't want to have to answer more questions or look people in the eye. You're embarrassed. You're ashamed of what you've done. God is a God who will meet you there and reveal himself to you the same as he did to this woman. 
pick it back up in verse 27. Just then, his disciples come back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, uh, why do you, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? Well, the, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, the, the disciples come back, and they're experiencing a whole new kind of wonder. Like this reverent, respectful curiosity. Like, like they're sort of awestruck at, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, number one, this isn't the way we would have gone to get to the Galilee. And number two, the fact that we had to go in there and look for lunch, like this is uncomfortable. This is not a trip we're enjoying. You're stretching us here, Jesus. And then they walk back and they see that he's talking to a woman and, they're, and it says, like, they're wondering what's going on. But none of them wants to, like, enter into that. It's like there's this tension there of they're sensing that they just interrupted a, a holy moment, that there was something miraculous going on there that felt important, but it didn't fit with the way they expected things should look. They wanted to ask, but they didn't want to ask. Meanwhile, the, the woman, she came to the well to get water. She leaves her jars, the very thing she came for. She drops the jars and runs back to town to tell everybody. To tell everybody, you've got to come and see. You've got to come and see. I, I, the fact that she leads with the thing that she was most ashamed of, the reason she was going to the well alone, that's the first thing out of her mouth when she goes back to town. She's like, you've got to see. You've got to see the guy that knew all my stuff. And what's crazy, there's just so many things that we can unpack in this story. What's crazy and what I think so many people don't understand and they miss is that we've got to remember who she was. That morning when she left her village and was, it was busy about her business, keeping her head down, avoiding everybody, ashamed, embarrassed, however she got to where she got, there's all kinds of speculation of was she an adulteress? Was she maybe barren and an outcast in her society because of cultural rules about providing children? There's no way to know. But we know that she had five husbands and the one that she was with still wasn't her husband. She wasn't married to him. And so there's this perception of who she was and the, the kind of person that she was and the way other people would have viewed her, right or wrong, it just was the way the culture was. And, and we've got to understand, like, she went to the well on purpose at noon to avoid everybody else. She's not a person of influence. This isn't a woman who's going to garner everybody's attention that they're going to hang on her every word or listen to. They're going to walk to the other side of the street and not look her in the eye. And yet, she has an experience with Jesus. She goes back to town and she says, you've got to meet the guy that knows everything about me. He, he might be the Messiah. And all of a sudden, a village full of people that would have never gave her the time of day hang on her words and act based on her testimony. And the only thing I can think of 
is that she was just full of the wonder of God. Like there was something just radiating about her. Her her countenance had changed. Her tone had changed. The way she thought of herself had changed. And, and it impacted people when she shared her testimony. Now check out what happens next. This is pretty cool. Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. Did somebody bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for the harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit that they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest, and it's true. And I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to reap and gather the harvest. It's so awesome watching Jesus interact with the disciples. Because he just is a master at keeping them on their heels, keeping them off balance. About the time they think they've got something sorted, he's throwing them curveball. From the, from the morning, the detour, like we're going a route you didn't expect. He, he keeps them on their heels. From the, they walk back up and thinking like, hey, we just went to get, like we're on a mission for food. And they walk back up and they interrupt something that's like, this doesn't fit what we would expect to go on. Like, so they're wondering, but they're afraid to ask him. So they're not sure what's going on. And then with something as simple as, hey, Jesus, do you need a sandwich? sandwich he keeps them on their heels it's like jesus is the master at reorienting and redirecting people's eyes and lives and thoughts to just refocus on like you've got to keep being rewoke up to the fact that god's at work around you and, and and he takes something like hey did you have anything to eat do you need a sandwich and he turns it into an object lesson he's like oh teachable moment Funny you should mention food, because I thought you guys might want to remember that the thing that nourishes me the most, you guys want to know what fills me up, that gets me so full, nothing makes me more satisfied than to get to do the will of God and finish it, like to see it come to fruition, like to actually get to be a part of the harvest of people coming to know God eternally, like that's better than any lunch you'll ever bring me. Oh, and by the way, you guys are not going to believe this, but you guys, you, you actually get to be a part of the harvest. I know you know all about harvesting. Like there's all sorts of sayings, right? You, there's four months between planting and harvesting. And like, and I'm not talking about fields and stuff right now. I'm talking about a harvest of people. And, and I actually am sending you guys into a place where you didn't do any of the work. You didn't have to plant anything, but today you get to be a part of the harvest to which the disciples are going like, yes, I think right? Like, like we've been pushed around since the minute we started following you. We've been talked down to the Pharisees have been against us. And finally you're talking harvest. Like you're talking payday. Like we get to see people come to follow you and commit their lives and receive eternal life. And that sounds awesome. But I don't know if you remember we're in Samaria and these aren't the right people. These aren't the right people. Surely, surely you can't mean that there's going to be a harvest here. But watch this. Verse 39. 
Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. And so they stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him for ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. And so, so one detour leads to another. First, they're going a, a route they didn't plan on going or probably didn't want to go. And now all of a sudden, they're receiving hospitality, invited in to receive hospitality from the very people they would have traveled way out of their way to avoid even seeing, looking at, or going near just a couple days before. And not only are they receiving hospitality from them, but they are in the harvest game now. I don't know if you remember how the story started. The very beginning of John 4 starts off with this, uh, this picture that says that the Pharisees were seeing that Jesus was gathering more disciples and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, but it wasn't Jesus who was doing the baptizing. His disciples did. That's where we started the story. That was the catalyst to send them off on this mission. And so here in Samaria, would we think it would be any different? No. The disciples are baptizing Samaritans while Jesus looks on. Do you think there's some wonder in this detour? Do you think there's some wonder and, and just this awesome, overwhelming joy at the same time, muddled all up with, I didn't feel like it was supposed to be this way, but I can't argue with what God's doing. And it's amazing. And it's stretching me and challenging me in ways I never thought I would be stretched. All of this going on at the same time. How awesome. How awesome is God. It makes me just question and wonder like how often in our lives are things not going the way we thought they would how often do we get sent on a detour maybe right now you're in a spot where you're like this is not the way i saw my life going i think this last year with covid it has been the year of the detour right in leadership the word the overused word is like we all had to learn to pivot right i think god's like I've been pivoting people for years. I've been in the pivot business. And God sends people on detours. And maybe you're on a detour and you're wondering, like, what is, up, what is going on here? This isn't the way I wanted my life to go. This isn't the way I planned this season to go. This isn't the way I wanted my education to go or my career to go or my relationship to go. The things that are going on with my kids or my spouse... And I think when we get in these detour things and things aren't going the way we expected and anticipated according to our own plans, it's really easy for us to think about the, taking the own, our own reins in our own life and, and, and being like, this isn't the way I wanted it to go. And we get negative and we get sour and we get tired and we get grouchy and we kick against the goads. Like we're like, no, I don't want to do this this way. I want to do my way. And I think it's really easy for us to get our head down and get you know, obstinate and stubborn and miss 
what God wants us to see in the detours and miss the way he wants to stretch us and grow us and have us see new things and experience new things and think about how God works and how God is at work in our lives when you're on that detour. It's easy to maybe even miss a harvest of souls, like actual people that you might to get part, to participate in inviting into the kingdom because you're so frustrated with things not going the way you wanted them to go on a route you didn't plan. Hey, grab your notes, because in your notes, there's going to be some questions on the back side. And I want to run through those with you. And these are some things I just want you guys to be wrestling with. I want you to take these into your small group, sit them at your dinner table. Well, let's run through them together. The first thing is, is just sort of like I was talking about just now, is we need detours to lead us to new experiences. We are creatures of habit. It is very easy to just keep doing the same thing the same way because it works for us. Like We like to do the things we do because we planned them. We love being in charge of us. It's our favorite thing. And so God leads us on detours because he wants to lead us into new experiences. We need to travel through Samaria from time to time. Number two is, am I willing to lay down my plans and agendas in favor of God's? We love our plans. The question is, how, how quick, how willing are we to, to lay those things down? I think probably everybody's heard this analogy or seen this analogy, but like, as Christians, when we commit to follow Christ and be kingdom citizens, we have a king who is our leader. And we, it's this, this process as a disciple of changing the way we live from my life being about me and my way and my plans to my life being about like, I have ideas and I have plans and I have things I want to do with my money and things I want to do with my house and things I want to do in relationships and adventures and travel and all that. But I want to just keep all those out here with an open hand. And God, like, I got some stuff that I'm thinking about and I'm going to go for. But at any point, if you need to redirect me, I'm in. Like, ultimately, I just want to submit all this to you and follow you. And it's like, it's a new way of living that we don't do naturally until we become kingdom citizens and start learning to bend a knee that we have a king and a, and a director to follow. And the third thing is, are you willing to share your meeting Jesus story? Are you willing to share your, your testimony about encountering and, and meeting Jesus? Like in, in this story that we just read in John chapter 4, the, the, the whole part where she goes to the village and testifies about meeting Jesus, that's the linchpin of this story. Without that testimony, the story dies at the well. Without her testimony back at the village, Jesus and the guys end up having a weird object lesson about lunch, and then they just go to Galilee. No village saved, no, res- no, no redemption, no amazing things going on. Like, none of that happens without her story. And I think a lot of times when we think about sharing our faith or sharing our story about Jesus, a lot of people can go, oh, that's just not me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. And so, okay, nice. You still talk, and you met Jesus. Like, could you talk about meeting Jesus? Well, I'm not an evangelist. Like, that's a special gift, and only certain people have that gift. Yeah, I don't think so. I think anybody can talk about a, a story. I think anybody can tell a story that's an important story to them. 
And, and I think one of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading this and, and reflecting on it is, I, I think when you're thinking about sharing your Jesus story and you're like, I feel like it's what a Christian's supposed to do, but then all of your normal flesh stuff starts coming in. I'm embarrassed. I'm worried about what people are going to think of me. It's uncomfortable. What if I don't do it right? What if they ask me questions I don't know the answer to? And all that junk starts crowding in. I want you to kind of roll back the clock, and I want you to stop and reflect and think about this Samaritan woman. I want you to think about the kind of person she was and the shame that she was carrying around and the embarrassment she was carrying around. If there was anybody that ever had a reason to be worried about what people were going to think about her. Think that people were going to turn a blind eye and ignore her and treat her badly or tell her why she was wrong or ask her to prove or on and on and on. Like this gal had every reason not to share her story. And yet we see that, that God trusted her. He, he, like, I want you to imagine this. Like The opportunity to share about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life and, and, and why you've chosen to follow him, it, the opportunity to tell someone else about that is a privilege and an honor. Like, like God in all of history gave this gal the opportunity to not only know who he was, first of all, of all people, but he gave her the privilege of being the first person on earth to get to go share that I actually have met the real Messiah. And when you share your testimony about encountering Jesus and who Jesus is to you and, and, and why you're following him, you are following in footsteps of some pretty amazing, courageous people. And if she can do it, every one of us can do it. And you know what was so awesome at the end of this story? Is at the end of the story, there's this huge, amazing miracle that happens in this village. The hearts of the disciples are being shaped and changed. Jesus is watching his guys start to get it and mature before his very own eyes. There's people being discipled. People are receiving salvation like eternal life. There's miraculous stuff going on. And at the end of this story, the people from the village come back to this woman who they would not have looked in the eyes just a couple days before. And they look her in the eyes and they say, you know what? You know what's so amazing is now, now we actually believe, not just because of what you said to us, but we believe because we actually saw with our own eyes that like what you said was true. We actually believe that he is the savior of the world. And like, like how grateful are they all of a sudden that this woman that they never would have spoken to before actually spoke up and told them. What they would have missed out on without her testimony. How amazing would it be if you had the guts and the courage to share your faith with somebody and talk to somebody about your encounter with Jesus? How awesome and amazing would it be if you get the day where they come back to you and go, you know what? Your story wasn't the thing that saved me. But your story led me to be curious about the guy that you had put your faith in. And I now know who he is and I believe in him. And I wanted to tell you, like, I am so grateful that you introduced me to him and set me on that course. Like, I can tell you, there's few things better in the world than somebody coming to you and saying, like, thanks for sharing your Jesus story. I know the guy now, too. That's a pretty amazing thing. The last thing on there is, if you knew what God was doing in your detour, would your attitude be different? 
I love that at the beginning of the story when she's like, hey, why are you talking to me? And don't you know, here's all the rules. Here's all the expectations. This is what's normal. And he's like, if you knew, if you knew what God was up to and who you were talking to, you wouldn't be worrying about any of that. And I wonder if God doesn't want to say that very same thing to you. The thing that you're going through right now, the way life's not going the way you didn't expect, the way things have taken a turn that was unanticipated and you're wrestling with what's going on and what's next and how's it going to work out. I wonder if God isn't looking at you going, if you knew what I was up to in your life and who you were talking to, you'd be coming at me with a whole different line. Well, this morning, let's grab our communion and finish with a time of uh, just remembering and reflecting together. So go ahead and grab that. And those of you that are watching online with us, we're so grateful that you're with us. And we just ask that you would grab your communion too, so that uh, together, this is one of those things that can really unite us, that uh, when you're watching at home or when you're watching in this room, this is one of those times where we can just draw together near and far and be family. We remember that God is a God who will go places we don't expect God would go. We remember that God's a God that will engage and intimately care about people that we oftentimes dismiss. We remember that God's a God that will meet you at your well in your most embarrassing times when you're going through stuff that you're carrying around a lot of regret and shame. God's not afraid to go and sit down with you. And we remember who God is and we get reminded of the kind of God God is. It's easy to come to the communion table with gratitude, with a thankful heart, with wonder at how awesome God is. And so that's where we come as we come before. And we we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said that this bread represents his body, which was broken for us. So let's remember the body of Christ as we take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, which was sealed with his blood. And so as we take the cup, we remember the blood of Christ Let's take the cup. Well, let me pray for us. Man, God, you are, you're just so good. We love you so much. God, we thank you for your intervention in our lives. We thank you for meeting us in our times of embarrassment and regret and shame and those times where we're trying to hide and avoid everybody. And, and God, you just show up and sit down right next to us and say, hey, if you knew, if you knew me, you'd be able to see how much different this could go. So God, I pray for each and every person here that they would know you, intimately know you as their Savior, as their God, their discipler. God, don't let them, don't let them go without reaching out at the well. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.